everyone and welcome welcome to the 40th df direct weekly yes somehow we've managed to do 40 of these things now it's quite an astonishing thought and uh, joining me on this particular episode first of all will judd in from the wilderness from the black fridays that you've all heard about <laughs> we're going to talk a bit about your exploits uh, your master puppeteering of black friday <laughs> yep. a bit a bit later on but uh, suffice to say it's a Fascinating story. And also, of course, joining us, Alex Batalia. I was gone a week, but you can't get rid of me for long. And I'm excited to talk about all these things on the docket here. And um, just in time for your fantastic new haircut as well. This is true. You... This recently acquired, uh, as you can see, quaffed rather nicely. Okay, well, let's, let's kick off with our first topic. Okay, so this one is going to be short and sweet, and I guess it's a PSA. Um, there's a good chance that this direct will be going out early because um, of various embargoes, the first of which being Halo Infinite. Oh, yeah. And um, what can we say about Halo Infinite? Not a lot at the moment because we are under NDA, but suffice to say we will be covering it. Uh, we will be producing several pieces of content, um, kicking off with an overall tech review produced by John, um, his usual sort of showcase coverage. And uh, Alex, why don't you talk us through what you're planning to do with PC? PC uh, will follow kind of what I tend to do in most videos, but since I do have a little bit more time to work on this one, I'll try and be a little bit more complete. There will be a uh, comparison to the Xbox Series X versions. Uh, there will be a separate uh, optimized settings category, essentially. Sometimes I just take over those Xbox settings, but in, where I find them lackluster, uh, I'll try and actually make my own settings. Uh, uh, so there'll be a separate optimized settings uh, sheet. There'll be generic mid-range uh, coverage, as well as um, John's going to be doing a, a generic tech review, kind of like he always does, covering a lot of topics. But there's some very specific things that I that my, my eye catches and that I want to talk about. Uh, so you can look forward to that as well, too. Wait, 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 wait. You're going to be hijacking John's video. Well, something like that. I mean, I'll be talking about John's going to be going through, you know, uh, you know, what looks good, what doesn't look good, things he likes, and I'll have my own separate semi-PC orientated version of that, to say the least. And um, also, obviously, I think the big question people want answers to is, can this thing run on Xbox One? Um, obviously, the multiplayer version is out, and it's, uh, it's reasonable, you know, it's not too bad. But um, it's all about the campaign, right? Can the campaign run on a base Xbox One? And also we've seen with the multiplayer codes that Xbox One X is actually uh, really, really good. <laughs> so the question is, does that um, sort of map over to the campaign as well, which uh, in theory is a very different animal. But yes, that's kind of the lie of the land there. Three videos, um, overall sort of um, a tech review. We're going to have a deep dive focus from Alex on PC and then uh, with the console versions, um, obviously, we're going to be focusing on that and seeing just what each of the uh, specific Xboxes can deliver and whether we can get that same level of scalability that we saw in Forza Horizon 5, which was, was quite fantastic. So, yes, look out for that. Um, but I think that's all we've really got to say about this one. Um, so let's move on. I think one of the most misbegotten releases <laughs> of recent times uh, was Grand Theft Auto Definitive Edition. 
Um, I guess the good news is that we've had a series of patches now. The first one didn't really do anything um, in terms of addressing our overall complaints. Uh, but this new one seems to be, or well, the latest one rather, I expect many more, seems to be sort of attempting to address some of the content issues, right, Alex? Yeah, so uh, one of the big things was addressing mostly the rain sorting issue. Um, and this is actually both a gameplay, has such a large gameplay effect. So that's why I think it's one of the first things they addressed uh, because there's other visual things that they obviously need to change based upon John's video uh, that are a little bit more time consuming probably. But this one is essentially like, so when you go in the game and it starts to rain at any time in the, in the you know, GTA 3 DE version, uh, the rain sorts improperly with other alpha effects or doesn't have any understanding of when things are indoor and outdoor. Uh, so you can see like water sorting in front of the rain. You go inside a car, it's raining inside the car. It totally destroys the mood in the game, along with making it visually incomprehensible. So that was like one of the first things changed. And it's really good to see uh, the rain effect itself, though, I think, as far as I understand and everything I've seen, is still using a very similar system. So it doesn't necessarily look great but it has less issues. Um, one, one of the other things I saw too was um, GTA San Andreas. They added a kind of mid-level height fog when you go to the higher elevations, which is good because the original game was built around, you know, depth-based fog in the distance for rendering reasons. Uh, but also, if you think about the city it's trying to represent, which is Los Angeles, quite obviously, it needs to have some smog. It needs to be have that atmospheric look. And when you, you know, in the original version, uh, when you look out over the entire city, it's literally just like an island floating in the middle of nothing. And you can see all of that. And that's not very flattering. Uh, it's interesting, I guess, technically that that it happens but it's just not good looking and that's kind of what a lot of the other things were just like semi-necessary things that need to be done to fix the game but i think you were right when you said misbegotten rich where like the starting point of this project is almost flawed uh and it maybe will never be in a perfect place as a result that san andreas sort of vista shot of uh, when you're in flight and you can just see you know, a flat plane with everything on it. It did kind of make me think this is possibly our insight into how the flat earth society view, <laughs> view the world. <laughs> view the world. Uh, there, there are improvements there. So, so Will, I mean, obviously this is somewhat out of your purview, but as a kind of outsider watching this drama unfold, what, what's your take on it? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's made some amazing memes, I think has been the main takeaway is that you know the rain inside the car and just you know you go and see like a character is just deformed in a really blobby way and like it's been as an outsider that you know has fond memories of playing those games back in the day but has no desire to kind of revisit them necessarily it has been just incredibly hilarious to see like how badly it's been done in some aspects like some things you can kind of understand they're working from a mobile port that's not ideal but, you know, there seems to be, uh, you know, maybe uh, cases where there hasn't been, there hasn't been enough detail, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, it's just rough, isn't it? Like as, as people in the games industry space, you never want to see this kind of thing come out because you just feel bad for all the devs that presumably were working on it, but maybe didn't have enough time to turn it around or just had too much to do or. I don't know. Clearly, it's you know not really been to anyone's expectation. 
you know, a lot of um, uh, stories and uh, anecdotes are now starting to circulate. And it certainly wasn't a lack of time that they had on this project. It was in development for uh, about three to four years. <laughs> yes. Um, but that's a story for another time. Um, I think the thing that sort of concerned me the most about it is, um, and it kind of can be summed up with one image, which is that, I mean, one of the fixes they've made for San Andreas is that the uh, the tough nut donut, which uh, which was basically, um, it was a donut, but it was a low poly donut. And it was a plate, you know, it was saying, right, okay, you know, we can't render in with, with high geometry. So, you know, this looks like a nut and that's what we're going to present. And that's the joke. And then the, whoever did the the, the uh, uh, remastering smoothed it off. <laughs> Which ruins the just, entire visual joke. It, it, it kills the joke. And it just says to me that whoever was doing that doesn't have any, an even surface understanding of what this game is about. That's, you know, that's the, the issue there. And there's been a ton of spelling mistakes in textures and whatnot, uh, which apparently, I mean, there have been um, uh, some fixes with that in this regard. Um, but it just kind of says to me that there, were, there wasn't the care and attention that should have gone into this project. There wasn't oversight in terms of quality control. Um, there was no vision what is the vision here? You know, the, I can kind of see now. I mean, I did play GTA 3 this morning just so I didn't go into this discussion uh, without any kind of informed opinion. Um, the rain was improved. I mean, I'm looking at some of the fixes here. Uh, fixed an issue where rain could be seen inside the mansion during the cutscene to the mission cutting the grass. I mean, there's lots. There's like one, two, three, four, five. Um, uh, all, it's all about rain being seen inside. I do really wonder then, when you say something like that, like, was this rain added in the last second of this game's development so that it became such an issue? Because it was one of like the memeable issues because it made the game almost unplayable at certain parts because uh, it was so thick and weird, you know? Uh, so mm, I don't know. I'm loving this one, uh, this, this patch note. Uh, fixed an issue where the rain appears underwater to a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, this is the question, right? I mean, it's so obvious that there were issues with the rain because it's right there when you first start playing GTA 3. You know, you turn a corner, you drive towards the sea, and the sea is on top of the rain. It, it doesn't make sense. How did this happen? I, I mean, obviously, there are stories circulating about the, the development process here, but it doesn't answer the fundamental questions of, you know, how did this get through? Uh, why, why did, why did it happen in the first place? I guess there's still issues also about um, the the process of moving it to Unreal Engine Four as to whether that was a, a good idea or not. I suspect it was there so they could take these older legacy games and move them onto a a modern platform that's scalable into the future, right? Yeah, multi-platform by the get-go, kind of, you know, uh, rendering-wise. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's just kind of kind of bizarre. But um, I think things have improved. I was playing on Series S this morning, and um, I kind of, when it works, you get an idea of where they're heading with this, which is to say that they're trying to preserve some, that they're trying to sort of retain the original aesthetic of this kind of, um, low poly environment, but to round everything off and and try to pass it off as kind of CG, if you see what I mean. So it it kind of works in places, but in other areas it just 
looks I, I still think it just is a fundamentally mismatched um, a combination of old and new. But yeah, this is this. I mean, I'm going to continue watching this story unfold. I mean, there's a ton of fixes here, uh, but performance is still almost comedic. Um, I mean, it is 60 frames per second in performance on Series S, but I noted drops under 40. So I think maybe there have been some changes there based on what I remember playing it the first time around. But it's still, when you consider the quality of the visuals, the concept that you know, this an Xbox Series machine can hold 60. Bizarre. That's bizarre. My question about this is that if you have access to the original PC version, is it still just the better version overall? Has it actually gotten to a point? The original version is going to be for a long time better uh, just for adhering to the original art style in general and also being timeless due to the fact that mods exist for it that do a lot. If you want to make your game look tacky and terrible, you can do that with mods and you don't need to pay extra money for it. So I, I feel like it's this is one of those cases where the project from the get-go lacked the vision that Rich is talking about, about, yeah, we move it to Unreal Engine 4, but for what visual purpose, like the what visual storytelling purpose does this need us fulfill? And that's where it just like falls really flat. Uh, and I don't think that requires re-arting the game. And are they going to do that? I don't think so, no. Well, there's still a lot of work to do um, and a lot of platforms to, to fix. That's that's kind of another thing to consider as well. But uh, yeah, very, very, very bizarre. Okay, um, well, let's move on to our next topic. Okay, so this is quite interesting. Um, obviously, we have CES happening next month and um, leaks are starting to happen as you would expect. And this leak in particular caught our eye, which is to say that um, we're going to be getting upgrades for both CPU and GPU by the look of things. Um, let's talk about the CPU first, Ryzen 6000, um, which aims to pair uh, Zen architecture, the latest Zen architecture, uh, for the first time with RDNA 2 integrated graphics. Well, I say the first time, it would be the second time if you include Steam Deck. Um, but yeah, this is looking pretty good. And um, RTX 3080 Ti, um, which is going to be a beast by the look of things, right, Will? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact that it's, I mean, the, the mobile 3080 is already quite a capable card. So anything, you know, beyond that in terms of performance is going to be pretty incredible, especially if it's paired with a new APU. And it says also in the article that you know, potentially there's DDR5 as well, PCIe 4.0. There's a lot of little things here that all have an incremental performance improvement. And, uh, you know, new GPU on top of that is, is going to be pretty impressive. So they're talking here about a new um, Ampere chip, GA103. We've already got GA102, which is 3080 upwards, uh, which hasn't been in a laptop because it's just too too much of a beast power-wise. Yep. Yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, and GA104, which is um, basically, uh, I'm struggling to remember, that's the 3070 chip, I believe. Yes, yeah. and below. 3070 and below. Yeah. So, yeah, so they're talking here about a GA103, which is brand new, and uh, specs there are talking about 7,424 CUDA cores, um, 16 gigs of GDDR6. Um, so, yeah, that is... a not a dramatic bump up from the 3080 mobile, which is a 3070 Ti with lower clocks. <laughs> and um, the thing that I think is a bit concerning from my perspective is that they're talking about 
150 to 200 uh, watt TGPs for these mobile parts, which is, I mean, I've tested a 3080 running 150 watts and that was in a 17 inch laptop and that was that was kicking out some serious fan noise. Um, so the concept of ramping this up with, you know, bigger silicon, more silicon and also more wattage, I think it's uh, going to require some pretty, pretty meaty cooling there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what you can see like the, the one that, that, that has been leaked is the model that kind of has uh, the second screen on the bottom half of the laptop. And then that opens up and then there's all cooling behind it. So there's fans and there's place for the air to come out. So in terms of, you know, designs that are thermally suitable, this is probably one of them. But yeah, I can't imagine that this will be in too many kind of thin and light style uh, notebooks. I'm always a little bit behind the times when it comes to hardcore gaming laptops, because I feel like if you're already uh, throwing that much wattage into something, uh, and you're sacrificing so much of the laptopness of the laptop, the ability. I mean, you can just, the only thing that makes this very interesting is the fact that it is movable from place to place. But once you start gaming, it becomes an immobile device. Uh, and I don't know, I, I just don't see the, the, the huge appeal of these things. I always feel like if you're that interested, maybe start I I exploring uh, like smaller desktop designs, like mini ITX PCs or something like that. Um, but that's just my two cents. I think there's a market for it, which is to say that some people want PCs that they can take with them. If you're like going to college or whatever, and you've got a small room, you might not have room for, for all of that, that kind of kit. And um, also, you know, people like to work and take their, their, their computers with them i mean certainly in the past like covering events and stuff it's very useful having a very fast laptop as opposed to just a laptop you know if you wanted to do any kind of video work or you know just crunching through photos or anything like that you know you certainly benefit from having a gaming spec machine i uh, i was just reminded of the uh, recent intel event will which we both went to where you <laughs> you pulled out your laptop uh, which which also seemed to come with a mechanical keyboard that you sat on top <laughs> oh of Oh my gosh, yep. I mean, for me... And, and you proceeded to tap away in the in the, in the presentation and people were wondering what the noise was. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I am that guy, aren't I? But I don't know. I'm just no laptop keyboard comes close to a true mechanical, you know? I'm, I'm currently using a membrane keyboard for testing purposes and it is the worst experience of my life, even though it's a nice keyboard but I'm, I'm so ready to go back to mechanical. It's so good. I mean, I think my recommendation from a um, gaming uh, laptop situation, having used quite a lot of them, is that, um, yeah, you do have to sacrifice some performance, but these 95 watt, 100 watt GPUs um, paired with a really good eight core CPU, uh, that's the sweet spot for me. I mean, we did this uh, sponsored video um, based on the Razer Blade, which was a 95 watt, 3070 uh, paired with um, six core Intel. And I was actually really blown away by the fact that you could actually enjoy high refresh rate gaming. You could enjoy visual feature sets that were on par with uh, what the consoles were doing. You had DLSS on top of that. So, you know, I actually think gaming laptops are a perfectly viable way to game. Um, and, but I just think that, you know, similar to what you believe, Alex, which is that when you start ramping up uh, the specs to insane levels, then 
basically the the user experience is compromised just because of the sheer bulk and the noise but you know i guess that's part of the pc ethos right you can choose do what you, you want to do, do what you want yeah. yeah yeah and i'm glad we've got that choice but yeah interesting stuff happening in the gaming laptop space I guess at some point we should talk about the fact that I have just actually, for the first time in six years, updated my Mac to an M1 Pro. Ooh, oh, yeah, we should add model. that maybe to like next week's docket. That'd yeah, be I, I need to actually play some games on it. But um, yeah, I mean, I just love uh, Macs as laptops um, for doing work on, um, not so much for gaming machines, but this certainly looks interesting. Um, but let's move on to the next topic. So this one is just outright weird. <laughs> because nobody at NVIDIA seems to want to talk to me about it, uh, which is to say that the RTX 2060, we've talked about this in the past, there's a 12 gig version coming. Now, the original 2060 was the sort of entry-level desktop um, Turing-based GPU that supported ray tracing and DLSS. Really interesting um, GPU because it is the least powerful and you know actually testing games on the least powerful um, RT-capable GPU, um, throws up all manner of interesting stuff. The 12 gig version here, I mean, specs are leaking. And it seems to be more than just a 2060 with 12 gigs of RAM. So, Alex? Uh, basically, based on the leak specs, this is looking like what you see internally with a 2060 Super, uh, but with a smaller memory interface, much like you saw in the original RTX 2060, and double the RAM, so 12 gigs. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, we've talked about this at least twice before in other DF uh, directs because this GPU has just been sitting in the background, sitting in the background. Apparently, it exists, and now we have semi-confirmation as well as saying that it's even uh, in the in the the driver notes. It's uh, saying essentially that this GPU exists. Yet still, Nvidia is not talking about it, uh, which is pretty funny. Uh, in terms of how it'll perform, I do find that the RTX 2060's Achilles heel, I think it's actually a really great GPU, but because it only has six gigabytes of VRAM, that limits its utility when you get up to 1440p sometimes, uh, limits utility for when you wanna up, up higher texture settings, which I think people buy modern GPUs and they're very disappointed when they realize they have to turn down texture settings, for example. Uh, look at the way people view like the 3070 or the way I view the 3070 and stuff like that. Uh, and I guess also when you turn on uh, ray tracing that has a memory impact as well, uh, and that can mean that sometimes you need to turn off ray tracing to have the game runnable on your GPU, even though the GPU is RT capable, um, or you have to turn down other settings to turn on RT, uh, which is always a disappointment. So I think this is technically a good GPU. I just find it, I just almost wish there was an Ampere version of this GPU just for the purpose of future-proofing for when they eventually mothball tearing into the drivers, as well as you know having access things uh, access to things like uh, rebar support, which Ampere has and Turing does not have, as well as um, uh, what is the other thing that Ampere has but Turing doesn't have? Oh, I'm forgetting. I just yeah, that's it exactly. You know, having access to later PCIe and things like that and that's you know something where if you're buying a new gpu now hmm, I, I get the feeling that the reason why this gpu exists is because the market for gpus is so bent out of whack to say the least um that they just want to throw out something out there that's good uh, but maybe not the latest the thing is actually you were saying you wanted an ampere version there is an ampere version it's called the 3050 ti 
um, and uh, they haven't released it. Um, and the question is why? Now, it could well be um, supply of the um, Samsung 8 nanometer process. Uh, it could be that. Um, also, there's the fact that with the particular memory interface that the 3050 Ti uses, you're essentially limited to 4, 8, or possibly 16 gigs of memory. You'd never use 16 gigs, so your top end would be 8. Um, I, I think that's, that's enough for what would be ostensibly a 1080p card. But for some reason, um, they're, they're producing this, this 2060 12 gig card in, instead. And uh, something which does, uh, I don't know how particularly relevant it's going to be, but the RT cores go up to 64 from 48 on the 2060. So I'm going to be kind of curious to see if there's going to be an uptick in RT performance that brings it perhaps closer into line with 2060 Super. The big thing here, which is the, the big problem, is that memory interface, right? Because um, your bandwidth drops from 448 gigabytes per second on a 256 bit bus to 336 on 192. Um, but, you know, I just find it really odd that they're bumping up 2060 specs at all because it's no longer a 2060 then. It's something different, but it's not a 2060 Super. Kind of weird. 2060 Ti? Particular... <laughs> yeah. Maybe. It were 2060 Ti. That would have been the thing to call it, right? Yeah, right. Will, thoughts? Yeah, it's just super confusing for consumers, isn't it? Like, you know, they're going to see this on a short shelf and be like, didn't this come out like five years ago? Like, why is this here? Why is this a new thing? Um, I'm sure that, you know, they have some existing good, you know, uh, goodwill about this brand. You know, the 2060 is known to be a good value card that can do RTX. And that's, I guess, you know, what they're tapping into possibly. You know, maybe people would be too confused by a 2060 Ti. But, you know, if it appears and it comes out for a reasonable price, people will definitely buy it. You know, we're in a situation now where there just are well, no options. Reasonable prices, are, reasonable yeah. price isn't going to happen, is it, realistically? Well, no. MSRP could be reasonable. Um, but yeah, I'm just wondering whether the, uh, NVIDIA have just got a, a sort of uh, inventory of the uh, TU-106 chips and they can get a big bunch of them out there um, that will tide people over until a 3050 or 3060, a 3050 Ti comes out. That would kind of make sense. Then I think the bottom line is that if NVIDIA can improve supply and get more chips out there, even if it is on an older process, even if it is on an older architecture, I mean, Turing's held up pretty well, I think. Yeah, it is. It's, it's usually uh, in every single title out there, it's right up there with its Ampere equivalents. There's only like rare scenarios, I'd say, where we see Ampere uh, go ahead uh, in ways that we don't expect. But it's usually right up there. Yeah. There is support in the driver now. We still don't have cards. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, taking a look at this and... Um, seeing what we can do with it. And ultimately, you know, Alex, we've been moaning about the lack of 1080p GPUs out there for quite some time. Uh, pricing wise, it all comes down to whether that's actually sort of reasonable or not on MSRPs before we go into the whole um, scalping situation. But, you know, yes, we, we definitely need something that's less capable than the 3060 that's available for a cheaper price. And 
maybe this will be the card. But let's see. There's. I should also say before we move on, there have been rumours of uh, RX 6500s and stuff. Obviously, CES is just around the corner. There's a big bunch of uh, rumours and speculation. But um, yeah, let's move on. So this one is really interesting. Reports out of China of a new um, line of GPUs dubbed, <laughs> and this is a lovely name, Fantasy One, uh, from a company called InnoVision. Uh, curious that we're seeing this. Uh, what do you, what's your sort of initial thoughts on this, Alex? So there was a essentially a collaboration between Imagination Technologies who make uh, mobile GPUs as well as they are one of the... As other industries were not were focusing on rasterization, imagination was always actually focusing on ray tracing, which is very interesting. Real-time acceleration of ray tracing. Uh, and this is a collaboration with this uh, company uh, to make this GPU with imagination. And the GPU specs themselves are not super awesome or impressive in any sense of the word. I mean, it's like five teraflops of single precision performance up to this doesn't matter, of course, but 32 uh, gigs of RAM, that's, uh, I think it's on a 192-bit interface, so you're going to be limited there quite heavily in terms of actual raw bandwidth. But this fills the niche, I would say, for the Chinese market uh, in an era when uh, GPUs are rare and you only need to do certain things within that market. Maybe you need to have an internet cafe that supports at least up to DirectX 11 and supports uh, very easy monitors. This card kind of does that because it it's uh, you know low end performance has DirectX 11 support, which they showed off in their in their demo there, and um, it also has VGA out. And as stupid as that sounds, there was a time when you there were so many cheap LCD monitors with VGA, uh, yet we have you know no GPUs that support it anymore. I think this actually is a really great emerging market technology. Uh, I don't know how much effect it'll have on the West, though. Uh, that's the thing. Really interesting stuff. I'm just looking through the report from video cards here. It looks like it's 128-bit. Um, 128, 128 there, so it's even lower. My goodness. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, but, the, but there is some really wacky stuff going on here. First of all, it does seem to have um, AI um, support, 24 tops AI oh performance, wow. which is bad. fascinating. Yeah. Um, but also SLI or rather InnoLink is back. <laughs> They've got a dual, a dual GPU solution. I would love to try it out. <laughs> two, two Fantasy One GPUs uh, claims 10 teraflops of compute power. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and um, oh, this fascinating is cool. stuff. I kind of want to test it. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. who knows? I mean, it's kind of Wild West territory as to how games are going to run on it, right? Because, you know, there's so much driver support required these days for good performance or performance at all. So to see this, I mean, Will, you're sort of plugged into the Chinese uh, gaming scene a lot more than we are. What's your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's, it's one of the, uh, it's not the first time we've seen, uh, you know, the Chinese market kind of come up with its own solutions to the problem of, you know, not having access to, um, you know, kind of more mainstream brands. A lot of the time, you know, rolling your own when you already have access to a factory is pretty inexpensive. It's just kind of about getting the designs together and, you know, kind of, as you said, getting the driver support into a place where you can actually play some games on it. But, you know, the, the fact that it's coming out is, you know, pretty promising, I would say. It certainly looks 
a lot better than previous uh, Chinese video cards that we've seen. And yeah, the fact that it's actually, you know, running on, you know, Heaven Benchmark and everything seems pretty promising. I think, you know, obviously we'll have to wait and see what the performance is like. I'd love to take a look at this. And I'm a big fan of like the design of these cards as well. They, they totally remind me of just kind of like older style graphics cards where you can see more of what's going on. And, you know, the fans have yeah, these wacky colors shrouded. and yeah, it just looks <laughs> awesome. I'm super excited. <laughs> and the fact it says as well, they have plans to utilize five nanometer process for, for these GPUs for, for their future. When ones. will they get access to that That's, is my question. Yeah. yeah. Like if they get access at the same time, then, you know, potentially they could come up with something that actually is even good in the West, you know? Yeah. I mean, we should stress the imagination graphics IP, you know, these guys, they do really good GPUs. Obviously, um, it's the foundation of the iPhone, iOS GPUs. And uh, I think um, Apple might have spun off their own take on the Imagination GPU uh, for Apple Silicon. But um, yeah, the pedigree is there. These could could be good parts. I'm just kind of taken with the, yeah, the IO here. It, it comes equipped with DisplayPort display 1.4, HDMI 2.1, and VGA. Yeah, that's so <laughs> cool. such a weird amalgamation there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Yeah, we just need to go one step further and have like S video and composite. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe SCART would be good as well. We could just have one of those Cat of Nine Tails kind of cables that kind of like plugs in and then it just shoots off into like 30 different connectors. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. But I really hope we could get hold of these just, you know, just for curiosity's sake more than anything. But uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Okay, right. <laughs> Let's move on to our next topic. So um, a while back, Super Mario 64 was completely reverse engineered, disassembled and rewritten from scratch. And um, it enabled the game to be enjoyed on a whole host of new and different platforms. Also opened up the slightly bizarre situation that um, uh ports based on this code base actually turned out to be better than Nintendo's own Switch version of Super Mario 64. Um, but the same thing is happening again with uh, the classic, the all-time classic, Zelda Ocarina of Time. So Alex, can you talk us through this? Yeah, I just want to firstly mention, since there's a lot of people, I think, uh, negatively react to the idea of people kind of going into code and making it their own regarding Nintendo products specifically. Um, and to just get it out there, there's nothing illegal about reverse engineering and decompiling a game. In fact, it's amazing that it's possible at all. <laughs> uh, we should, it's an engineering feat. And all people who worked on it, who are going to be credited for it, uh, they did something really incredible here, uh, but it's not illegal. So what happens is I've dealt with the, the Mario decompilation project because I covered it partially on the channel for a version of it that used ray tracing, um, is that they have the ability out there, they, they give you the ability to compile the project but without any of the assets that the game comes with. It's essentially just like the code all around the game. Uh, so, but none of the assets are with it. You have to provide them by yourself, usually by your own card or anything like that, that you have the ability to inject the assets into the game. And for the Zelda Ocarina of Time, why I think this is so good for this game is because a lot of Nintendo 64 games uh, targeted a performance profile that is just not really acceptable on modern terms. This is a 20 FPS game. 
Um, and I think seeing this game finally unshackled from that in a way where we'll be starting to see it running easily at 60, 120, 1,000 frames per second. Um, people, uh, you know, going into it and getting rid of a lot of the draw distance issues, but while maintaining the same uh, like core visual feature set of like fog, maintaining things, uh, this won't have any of the issues that we saw in the Nintendo eShop versions of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It'll be a pretty faithful port uh, when it does eventually come out and you can finally get your hands on it. And I'm just excited. I love this. I hope it happens to things like Perfect Dark and GoldenEye, which are also kind of just sitting on that machine waiting for their potential to be unlocked. It is um, essentially entirely legal simply because um, there is no original code. It's kind of it's the sort of clean room approach, right? Where none of the original code is actually in this new version. It's rebuilt from scratch, but it works in exactly the same way. So that's kind of the way it um, the way it, it kind of passes legal muster. And I think there is legal precedent for this. I think isn't it the case, Alex, that um, Rockstar are trying trying to overturn that with those GTA? Oh gosh. Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that is a, a, a worry. Uh, I guess the, in terms of the sort of legality of this, um, I guess some people may have concerns that the only way to source the assets you need to make this run does involve basically uh, reverse engineering the original game and getting hold of the assets that way, which most people, I suspect, won't be doing, right? That's that's the kind of legal gray area. But in terms of distribution of this reverse engineered effort, then um, th th that's you know Nintendo have got considerable legal power, but they they've not closed down. They've closed down compilations of Super Mario sixty four, right? But they haven't um, uh, actually gone after the the code itself or the people that made it. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of the line as, as it's drawn in the sand at the moment. And uh, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what they've, um, what's going to happen with this, because obviously it does open the door to taking the game in entirely new directions. So yeah, you talked about the ray tracing. I mean, there's a ray tracing <laughs> version of Super Mario 64. It's awesome. So yeah. That's just, that's just kind of, you know, the, the sort of uh, flexibility and the potential that these projects open up. And I know this has been like years in the making. So um, yeah, really looking forward to seeing what happens next with this and uh, exactly what can be improved, what can be changed. And um, yeah, the implications of that are fascinating. But uh, let's move on. This is just, uh, I don't know, it's seemed pretty obvious to me, uh, but Valve has confirmed that there's not going to be any Steam Deck exclusive games. Um, I don't think this is a massive news topic point, Will, but, you know, the whole point of the PC platform is that it's open. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, in my mind as well, this was never going to be a platform that, you know, say Valve just developed their own games only for this platform. Um, it is just a PC at the end of the day. It might be in a slightly different shape than we're used to, but, you know, there are already a lot of handheld, you know, PCs, gaming PCs even out there, and they all run basically the same games as gaming PCs, you know, this may be a little bit slower. So yeah, a bit of a non-story, but it's kind of good, I suppose, that, you know, they've at least said, you know, we're definitely not doing exclusives for this kind of thing. And, you know, presumably that means future titles from us will be, you know, available on all major platforms, which is good. That's not to say that games won't receive 
possibly some optimizations or at least a focus from developers to, to look at these uh, uh, to support the Steam Deck a bit more completely, right, Alex? Yeah, uh, definitely wouldn't be the case. So, <laughs> yeah. nothing to say about this. I mean, I mean, I mean it's just—it's essentially, yeah. I mean, this is just obvious for it's me. I think, I think the reason why it was asked, even as a question, is because people look at Oculus and what was happening there, and they think, okay, so this is a PC, but it's technically slightly different. Or, or should we be worried? And it's just the obvious. Game Newell answer of no, don't be worried. So that's but, about it. Yeah, the, the sort of takeaway is uh, PC in PC shocker. It's a PC <laughs> that, that works like a PC. I guess the, the question is really, um, and again, it's um, we've still not been hands on with Steam Deck, um, but it is all going to come down to the um, Proton layer, I think, in terms of um, actual compatibility and performance. Really looking forward to seeing more from it. Uh, but yeah, let's leave that one for now. Okay, well, let's uh, quickly talk about some DF content discussion or DF behind the scenes activities. Um, recently, Microsoft upgraded um, Windows 10 to inevitably Windows 11. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we could share some thoughts on, on our um, experiences with Windows 11. Just for me to go first, I upgraded um, my workstation PC to Windows 11, because uh, John seemed to be having quite a positive experience with it. I actually had a really negative experience. Um, things just didn't seem to work. I thought the taskbar is a regression in terms of what I had before. I thought um, presentation wise just seemed a bit off to me. I reverted back to uh, back to 10. Alex, what about you? Uh, well, I was going to upgrade at the beginning of the week, but then I, after finishing off all of the Windows updates that I could possibly find, it said my machine was ready for it. TPM was obviously on in the BIOS. This was going to be my workstation machine. But uh, it said your PC can do it, but it hasn't been rolled out to my PC yet. And I did this really quick arithmetic in my brain. Well, if I should force it if Microsoft doesn't think my PC is re not ready. Uh, because based upon your experience, especially after the fact where things are not working the way you expect them to, I definitely don't want that to get in the way of my workflow this week, which is very much so hands-on. I need to be being productive. Uh, from what I saw, though, at John's place, I recently visited him, and he has Windows 11 on his workstation machine. There were some things I did like. I did like the... Uh, turning on and off and switching resolution of monitors is actually much quicker. I think this has to do with WDDM 2.0 changes or something that they've done. On that side, uh, hardware accelerated, whatever uh, GPU scheduling is enabled from the get-go. I know that as well, too. Uh, but the other things that you're mentioning there, like the taskbar regressions, or I find it really regressive and pointless that they change the right-click behavior to require submenus for the usual things you're used to. Um, so I'll probably wait to upgrade until the moment when it's really necessary right now. So Will, you've been doing quite a lot of work with Windows 11 because you did our Core i9 um, Alder Lake um, review. So we had to essentially move to Windows 11 there because um, the, the thread scheduler only really works well with Windows 11, right? So do you have any opinions on the new OS? Uh, I do. Um, so I think when I was using it for that testing, it was actually really good. It was very stable. I didn't have any issues. I could do everything I needed to do, which was mostly just, you know, installing drivers and then running games. 
but that worked perfectly well, so no complaints there. I think the look of it is really nice. I think, you know, they've obviously taken some cues from Chrome OS and maybe from Mac OS and, you know, kind of stuff like that. It looks a little bit more modern. A lot of the icons have been updated to more modern looking versions, which is great. And I'm very kind of, uh, I'm, I'm of two minds. I think a lot of the changes they've made are good changes, but there's a lot of user interface stuff, which I am a massive detractor of. I believe the taskbar is a little bit sacred, at least for me. It's, you know, how I use a lot of a computer is, is through the taskbar. And I think they've removed some options that don't really make sense. For me, I always have the icons uh, separated out uh, so I can see all the programs that I'm running. And at the moment on Windows 11, there's no option to have that happen anymore. So if you have five Chrome windows open, for example, then you need to click on Chrome at the bottom and then choose which of those five windows rather than just being able to look and see with your eyes and then click on it directly. And I think stuff like that you can fix. There are various programs, but all of the ones I've tried seems to revert to kind of like more of like a Windows 7 style uh, taskbar and start menu. And that seems like too far a step in the other direction. So I'm hoping that eventually the Windows team will add in some of those features that maybe power users or just people that have been using Windows for a while are used to. That's kind of my uh, impression that I talked to you about earlier, Will, where I wish Windows uh, in its installation phase, as it was getting itself ready and, you know, you know, all that text on the screen, clicking through all the usability options you do or do not want to use. I wish it had uh, power user modes that it allowed you to elect into where it got rid of things like that I immediately turn on and off when I get into a PC already, like user account control and, you know, uh, having like a God mode on the desktop already and all these things that people take advantage of. I really wish that in the installation phase of Windows that you could have a greater control over the UI experience. I mean, by all means, you know, make changes, but I don't understand why you can't just have an option. Oh, I prefer the Windows 10 taskbar. You know, why not just include it? Why, you know, why force people into a, into a, a new system which doesn't really offer the same level of flexibility? I mean, it looks nice. So I agree with you that there is actually some really nice UI tweaks and um, there's a feeling of refinement in terms of um, the visuals. Um, I also quite like some of the new audio prompts that they've got. You know, it seems a bit less uh, jarring than prior Microsoft operating systems. And um, some of the animation seems pretty good. Uh, but yeah, it's not for me at the moment. And, uh, you know, essentially, if it's getting in the way of my work, if, if changes are making my workflow uh, more challenging, then it's just a it's just a write-off as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I mean, there have been some, um, I think there's been some A to B testing on um, gaming performance in CPU bound scenarios, and it seems to be faster on Windows 11, uh, which is good. So yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a bedding in phase and, uh, you know, um, good for some applications, but, but not for me at the moment. Okay, so let's move on to uh, a new uh, content discussion points to do with the DF supporter program. Join us <laughs> uh, for a whole bunch of behind the scenes materials, um, including Alex has just started doing vlogging, just sort of random topics shot on his mobile phone. Seems to be going down well with supporters. Yeah, it is. It's fun. It's requ basically my mindset of doing any vlog is 
what am I doing outside of things that are embargoed that I can show and just show it, talk about it, um, and also have it not be not require a lot of setup and teardown. Uh, so it, I'll just be only doing live mixing on it. I won't be doing any post edits and things like that. But I think honestly, most of it's probably going to be focused around my retro stuff because I do play like modern games occasionally, but I've been for about a year now more interested in retro stuff for a while now. So if you're interested in that, that's what I'm covering mostly in the vlogs these days. And uh, join up if you want to see whatever the heck I'm doing in the background that I don't talk about on Twitter or elsewhere. We're going to be doing more of this sort of stuff. And uh, John actually did a video, which was just his tour of the Xbox 20th anniversary muse museum. Uh, which, you know, it's just something we quickly interacted with, something we can just sort of do a quick piece of content about, um, but isn't really sort of worthy of the main channel simply because it's very niche, very short video. But yeah, look out for that sort of stuff because I think we all want to do more of them. Um, so yes, more coming soon there. Uh, it's not on the uh, DF content discussion list on the docket, but I quickly wanted to talk about GeForce Now RTX 3080 tier, um, which I have to admit, I played it for about 10, 15 minutes. I'm super busy at the moment with Halo, so um, I couldn't put a lot more time into it. But I've got to admit, I'm impressed by it. Latency seemed pretty good. It seems to me that if a game supports NVIDIA Reflex, then um, you get you can claw back latency against the cloud overhead and it seems to be working out pretty nicely. And um, I'm really sort of motivated now to take a closer look at the cloud streaming systems of the moment, which is, I think, GeForce Now. RTX 3080 tier just seems to be really, really quite impressive in terms of latency. And even image quality looked okay, if not quite the finished article. Um, and also, I'd like to take a closer look at um, xCloud, uh, Microsoft Streaming. Um, what I can say is that when I do do the content, it will be in a, uh, I'd say probably a office environment with a huge internet pipe because at home I use SpaceX Starlink and uh, it is a total disaster for xCloud. It just doesn't work, really is horrific. Um, but funnily enough, GeForce Now worked a lot better um, just with minor stutters. You've got to bear in mind Starlink is essentially a satellite internet service. Um, it doesn't have the reliability of traveling along a cable, which I think the cloud services essentially rely upon. Um, but yes, more coming soon on that. Um, final topic point, and then I alluded to it in the introduction, Black Friday. So here's the thing, right? We do have um, Digital Foundry deals operation deals at Deals Foundry on Twitter, at Deals Foundry USA on Twitter. And uh, the man here, Will, is the mastermind. He's the, as I said, the master puppeteer of all things related to deals and Black Friday. Um, so two questions for you, Will. Can you give us, first of all, some kind of insight into what it's like running this operation? And secondly, to what end did you mercilessly abuse your position of power to secure deals, what, which is to say, essentially, what did you buy? Well, it's, oh, it, it is an experience. Black Friday is always an experience. Um, even before we did Deals Foundry, we kind of covered Black Friday uh, in, the, in a physical office, in our Brighton office. And that was always like a real war room kind of atmosphere. Everyone kind of hunched around 
you know, a couple of desks going, I found a deal on this. All right, show me a deal on that one. All right, get it out. And it was just very different than most of the journalism that we do, which is very much more relaxed and much more about the technology and the process there. It's just a lot more about deals, 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 deals. You, you literally did call it the war. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so you literally declared war on Black Friday. <laughs> yes. No, we're declaring war on the customers of Black Friday. And we're assaulting uh, them you're declaring with the deals. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I thought you were declaring war on high prices. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true, definitely. <laughs> But in terms of, you know, what it actually looks like uh, in a post-COVID era, it basically involves getting an ultra-wide monitor, or maybe just a lot of monitors, getting TweetDeck up there, and just filling that, you know, kind of side to side with as many deals providers as you can find. Then on other monitors, you've got, you know, maybe hot UK deals, you've got slick deals in the US, you've got various discords that are pinging for, you know, graphics cards or PlayStation 5s or whatever else all these sources of information, and then trying to decide what you're actually going to cover. Because, you know, during Black Friday, especially the day of Black Friday itself, there's so much going on. And really, the, the, the challenging part is finding out what stuff that we actually like and recommend, and what can we, you know, get out in time to, to be helpful. So having the Twitter has been really good for stuff that goes out of stock instantly. Um, and then, you know, stuff that lasts for a while, we can have an article we had a few freelancers working uh, for Digital Foundry for the first time during this Black Friday, which was really good. They did some really good work uh, posting stuff on Eurogamer. And yeah, it was it was fun and exhausting, but I think mostly we we did we did okay. I think we did what we wanted to do. I'm just having a look at the kind of results here, some of the results. And PlayStation 5 SSDs were probably the standout item of this Black Friday for us. A lot of people want to upgrade the prices were great right i mean we're in the middle of a semiconductor crisis but you could pick up a two terabyte pcie gen 4 ssd for 200 pounds yeah, that's amazing that's okay and... which is pretty good stuff yeah and you know i guess at this point it kind of um, um validates the concept of sony going with an open standard because you know the one terabyte card for the xbox series consoles didn't really i mean i think that went down a bit right? yeah i think it's been it's down still to into... maybe 175 180 something like that okay that's pretty good but it's still nowhere near the value Absolutely, proposition yeah. of these pcie gen 4 drives yeah any other highlights what did you personally buy so i got the well the, the one thing on every tech buyer's wish list which is new cars new new car tires so, <laughs> so, there, so there was a Black Friday deal um, on on a particular UK car tire site, and I, so I got some lovely, some lovely all weather tires for my little Hyundai that's about twelve years old, and it's going to be great. I can't wait to go driving around. I just went to pick them up, have them installed. Oof, so exciting! Um, and then, other than that, I got a massive coffee machine. Um, I got. Ah, oh, you got that coffee yeah. machine, right? So I got the the. Who's the make? The Sage, uh, Barista Express, I believe. So that was going for four hundred and eighteen pounds on Amazon, rather than you know, five hundred, six hundred odd, and that's been a lot of fun actually. Like it kind of requires you to actually know what you're doing in terms of making coffee. You need to actually, you know, like it has a little thing you grind the beans, and then you got to get your little tamping thing, and then put that in there. And then, you know, you got a little razor blade to scoop off all the excess and you got to put it in and, you know, extract the shot and everything. 
and it's loads of fun actually really really good um my coffee is still worse than the coffee machine that you can kind of see in the background which is just a pod based one but i'm sure i will get there and that's that's been the highlight of, of the black friday for me what did you guys get if anything well, I think I mentioned this last week that there have been further developments since then. Um, but yes, I bought 18. I mean, again, you know, when we were going into Black Friday, the thing I said to you, Will, is that, you know, we back up everything. So please, any big hard drives uh, you see, please shunt them our way. And um, yeah, there was an 18 terabyte. I mean, there were actually a big bunch of deals on 18, 16, 12. Um, I think I bought two 18 terabyte drives, one for me and one for Tom. Um, I've also bought, um, kind of possibly moving into na major Nelson territory here, but uh, I am going to have a Wi-Fi boiler. I've what? A, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, oh, it's just a case great. of uh, balancing uh, temperatures in my house at the moment because uh, we've got small rooms upstairs and a big room downstairs, which basically means that the big room is always colder than the smaller rooms. So, yes, we have embraced the future of thermostat technology there. Um, what else? Um, there was actually a pretty good deal on Outlook 365. Uh, I buy that pretty much every year because um, the DF team use uh, Word and um, Outlook. So we've got like a family deal there because we are family and uh, it has to be renewed every year. Uh, what else? Oh, um, the Amazon always have their 20% off on the warehouse, right? And um, yeah, we flagged a couple of deals, but um, on a recent trip to Poland, I lost my um, Samsung Galaxy Active Watch. And um, I actually managed to, I mean, that cost me something like £120 back in the day. I actually got a replacement for £42 from the warehouse, which kind of blew me away. Um, I also got a new teleprompter um, for camera work here um, because there's much better ones available now with like remotes and whatnot um, so yes all of it was yeah pretty much all of it was work related um, no pleasure no new coffee machine for me, oh, for me Will. you already had one so I yeah think. i already had one up. but uh, i i agree with you the, the sort of bean to cup scenario um, you still got to work really hard to match those pod based machines and I do, you know, the only reason I don't, I mean, I gave you my pod-based machine. And the reason the reason why is because um, I just couldn't get on with the environmental cost of all of those pods. Um, and yes, you can recycle them, but somebody's got to drive to your house to collect the pods, which kind of seems to defeat the purpose. Yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare. But yes. Never mind. Yeah, Alex, did you did you avail yourself of, of Black Friday or were you unsullied? Unsullied completely. Um, no, but I did grab something that was unrelated to a deal on Black Friday. That was the EA Classics versions of Wood Commander 3, Heart of the Tiger. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's not, it's, it's EA Classics version, unfortunately. So you don't get the, like, why is, what were they thinking of showing a box on a box is what I always wonder. But I wanted a physical version of this so I could install it really easily. Uh, and it's fine. The condition is okay. It's got a little stain on the back, which is annoying. But that is what I availed myself of. I already have a delicious, awesome, I think the company's name is Longi Coffee or something like coffee machine. De Longi is what it's called. That's right. Yeah, um, that's fine. Works wonderfully. I, I drink coffee all the time. Did not get a new one. Don't own a car. What's the point in Berlin? Um, so 
that's about it. <laughs> so uh, you you didn't avail yourself of wheels? Yeah, I didn't tempt uh, you. I'm so tired. No winter tires for me. No, I just wrap chains around my feet and I walk through the. Brilliant. Okay, well let's move on. Final segment of the show, but always one of our favourites, which is to say we field questions every week from supporters on the DF supporter program, and uh, yes. You can have your question read out and answered by the team in DF Direct Weekly. So yes, join us. Uh, first question, Joe Esposito. Nice shorts question for all of you. Pick a, pick any game, any time, any system that you could be there for every step of development in. You're a fly on the wall from inception to completion. What game would it be? What game would it be, Will? This is a great question, by the way. I think for me it would be the original Fallout. Because yeah. On a technical level, it's not too dissimilar from other RPGs of its time. But in terms of the storyline and in terms of, you know, making a game where you can just kill any character and the story has to go on, I think that would have been a fascinating place to be. And I can guess from, I don't know if you've, you guys have ever seen this, but if you hold down shift and then you click on the credits button in Fallout 1 or Fallout 2, you get a selection of quotes from the development process. Oh, I didn't know that. And they are kind of universally incredibly weird and very suggestive and very crude. And it sounds like they were having a really good time. So I just think that would be a fun place to be for, you know, however long I could be a fly on the wall. I mean, there's already been so much written about Doom that I think I would choose Quake. Uh, because it's the transitive period in its history when they're growing, they're moving to real 3D, they change the game incredibly during its developmental phase into something that it, that's why it looks the way it does. Uh, and it also signals the end of, you know, John Romero being at id. Uh, I would love to have been there for that entire process and just to see them bouncing ideas off each other about how to make the game. Because it's not like Doom where... It was, it's the first time any of this stuff has ever been done before. There's like a generic idea of how to do 3D already. And there's already been the first person games, but it's like, how do you refine that to make this into this great game? And I would love to be there. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'd like to add to that, Alex, which is that uh, the best multiplayer game I've played this year is the original Quake. It just strips out ev everything that, um, it strips out decades worth of of game of game development within the multiplayer space and it just leaves you with the pure experience and uh, you know you're not leveling up you're not doing loadouts um there's no sort of gatekeeping on on being able to access the best kit and the weapons are all finally perfectly balanced i'd say um and it just feels phenomenal so look here's the thing right quake remastered it does everything that you need. It's very cheap. Buy it. Buy it with your friends. Play some play some multiplayer games on Quake. It's it's the best multiplayer you're going to have this year. You're not going to be complaining about progression systems. Um, it's it's just going to work, and it's going to work beautifully. Uh, to answer Joe's question from my perspective, man, I, I, I'm I going to be honest with you, Joe. I don't want to be a fly in the wall from inception <laughs> to completion for every step of development. Because, you know, if you look at something like Horizon Zero Dawn, it's um, it was a six-year process. Oh, yeah. Imagine being a fly you know, for six years. That's going to be, you know, so many fly lifetimes. Long -lived 
Yes, I mean, yeah, it should be, maybe game development should be measured in fly lifetimes. But uh, yeah, um, but in terms of you know turning up for you know seeing significant milestones, man, it could be any any one of a number of games. But I agree, going back to the early days, uh, maybe even the like the original Space War, you know, just the original idea of hey, I want to make a video game, and he and I'm going to get on and do it. That's quite a phenomenal concept. There's been so many sort of massive um, moments in the in the history of making video games. I'd like it to be there, you know, for a great many of them. I can't really narrow it down to one game. But there we go. Um, okay, next question from uh, Vaisal. And I do hope I've translated uh, the Cyrillic name there <laughs> with a correct pronunciation. Um, Question, do you think that this semiconductor shortage, GPU prices skyrocketing as a result of cryptocurrency mining? But I'm not, I think that is a contributing factor. I'm not sure it's the main one these days, as well as disappointing supply slash demand of gaming consoles. Do you reckon all of all this will go back to the good old days in a year or two? Or will it become a long term problem and price slash availability won't come back to normal anytime soon? What do you think? Thank you. I love the great job that you're doing. Thank you very much. Will, what do you reckon? Well, in, from my perspective, I think it's definitely going to be, you know, a problem for multiple years, unfortunately. I think we're already, in terms of, you know, supply of existing products, like graphics cards and PlayStation 5s and Xboxes, we're more and more people have now finally gotten their hands on something. Um, I was able to pick up a couple of PlayStation 5s uh, within maybe two or three weeks of looking. And obviously I have some advantages in that I'm always looking and I'm always kind of ready to go. But, which, you know, some perks of the job, right? But I think, you know, if you're a regular person and if you're subscribed to these kind of alert services, you can get these things. You might have to get it in a bundle where you get some, you know, a t-shirt or a controller or something that you don't really want, but maybe you can sell on, or maybe you can just accept it that you're just going to have to pay a little bit more. Um, people can generally get the things that they want, but it obviously, you know, we're, we're not going to get to the place where we, you can just go into a store and just confidently say, oh yeah, I'll just pick up a PS5 on my way home from work. You know, I think we're still a, way, a ways away from there, mostly because of the silicon shortage and just the massive demand that's being placed on silicon from all areas of society, not just from gaming. There will be eventual return to a new normal, uh, not to the old one, because we've already seen upheavals in the graphics card industry over time uh, where a new normal establishes itself, as in what is the new mainline cost of a GPU? It's not 150 US dollars, that's for sure. So it's always changed a bit over time. Uh, but I do think there will be a time when there'll be, you won't have to necessarily be fighting bots all the time for availability. Uh, I think that is a bit particular to our current situation. But like you say, you say one or two years, I think we're probably about, unfortunately, like two years, we're like right in the thick of it. I think two years, it'll be different but not in the next year, that's for certain. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, right? I wasn't expecting to see any deals related to semiconductors in um, Black Friday. And yet we did get some fantastic deals and 
big availability on SSDs, which is um, very, very heartening. We also had some good deals on Intel Silicon, um, which caused um, price drops on AMD Silicon as well. There are some good deals there. So the situation is abating, right? And also, as Will says, um, it is actually feasible to get an, uh, a new console now, I think. Yes, you might have to camp um, on these uh, uh, on these sort of um, sort of stock lists that, that pop up. There's various Discord channels. Uh, there's also, of course, Steel's Foundry. Will's always on top of the latest. <laughs> Just get a plug in there. But yes, I think the bottom line is that it is eminently reasonable to expect that with a bit of effort, you can buy a games console now. Uh, you can buy a CPU. That's not a problem. You can buy memory. There's been some good memory deals. SSD, not a problem. It seems to me that the only thing that's problematic at the moment is GPUs. So maybe it is a result of this cryptocurrency mining boom, or perhaps more likely it is because the number one upgrade for a PC is the GPU. And um, the latest silicon um, from NVIDIA and AMD is exceptionally good, right? So you'd want to upgrade to this. I think also the fact that we've got these new consoles arriving means that um, uh, you should be looking at a GPU upgrade, right? You know, if you want to have RTX features or whatever. Um, so yes, that is a problem. Um, and I can't really see any sort of end to the situation in the GPU space because we're still at like 50 to 100% over um, MSRPs there, which is, which is, which is nuts. And it seems to me that even when there is like a big drop of new uh, cards, new shipments, it doesn't seem to make any uh, dent on the price there. So that is something that I think needs to be comprehensively addressed. And I do think that there has to be some kind of mechanism uh, to get GPUs into gamers' hands as opposed to any other um, market, you know, be it cryptocurrency or whatever. Um, if that requires waiting lists or whatever, then you know, let's let's get it all set up. Let's try to learn some of the lessons uh, from the last year because it's just been kind of nuts. So no firm answers there, but maybe there is for this next question from um, well, what is the name of this guy? It's a remarkable, <laughs> it's a good one. It's a remarkable hacker alias. Um, it's just off my screen. So yes, Beefington von Barnstorm. <laughs> Uh, not quite up there with agonizing rectal pain. <laughs> it's almost there, though. Yeah, it's, almost is, there. You know, it's definitely moving in the right, right direction. We've got momentum there. I think I missed it. But why the heck did frame rates for my PC, Ryzen 1700X slash GTX 1080, double when I added a second stick of 8 gigabyte RAM? Oh, my. Alex. <laughs> well, you're on a 1700X. You're incredibly CPU limited in very many games, especially modern ones. Um, you had a single stick in RAM there based upon the, the saying a second stick. And the way a lot of uh, computers have worked from, I guess, the mid 2000s until now is that they use multiple channels for the way RAM is accessed. And if you had only had one stick in there, that means it was using single channel mode. And you were just getting the raw bandwidth of that single uh, 
RAM in that RAM slot, that one module. But if you had two, two in there, that Ryzen 1700X, that system uh, is technically capable of dual channel memory operations. So it could have accessed both at the same time, effectively doubling bandwidth, which is the way it works. So you are essentially always with that one stick, always limiting your performance by quite a bit uh, in CPU limited scenarios, especially in that 1700X, which was very memory bandwidth uh, or very like memory latency and bandwidth bound, if I recall correctly, back in the day. So you essentially doubled your RAM bandwidth by adding in a second stick. And that's why you're running so much better in CPU bound scenarios. I would just say as a PSA, like do check this because it's very easy if you haven't built the system yourself to just see 16 gigs or 32 gigs or whatever, and just think, okay, that sounds like the number of people are telling me to get, I'll get it. And then if you just don't look inside the system, you might not know, but you can download CPU-Z or another tool and just find out if it's running in single channel mode, then it's really highly recommended to just pick up a second stick of whatever you currently have, plopping it in there, and then you'll be good to go. This goes back to um, a discussion that we had, I mean, on the channel, I think it was like 2015, 2016, where I was looking at, you know, how would I um, upgrade from a core i5 2500K? That was like the classic CPU of the era, right? That lasted for years. You didn't need to upgrade, you could keep overclocking, but it actually turned out that you got more performance from um, uh, increasing uh, memory bandwidth than you, well, as well, in, in combination with a with a core overclock, it needed the memory. My dog is here and he's just sneezing. sneezing oh. I hear it. Yeah, <laughs> sneezy dog. Come here. Come here. He's gonna have a new. Is it a digital foundry coming? Oh my god! Digital <laughs> foundry is joining us now. He's, he's not. He doesn't want to play ball. Oh. Stop sneezing. Not today. I'm on a direct. Not today. <laughs> But yes, essentially, we were looking at Core i5 2500K and how you upgrade it. And yes, you can overclock, but you could get a ton of extra performance by increasing memory bandwidth. And you did that by having faster memory. You did that by having dual channel. And I think um, at that point, people just didn't quite appreciate um, how important memory bandwidth was. And most of the benchmarks of the era were all GPU dominated, even when they were ostensibly for CPU tests. And um, then Ryzen came along, and then it, you couldn't fail to notice that um, if you weren't on dual channel, if you had slow memory, it would impact all aspects of the CPU's performance. And that's when I think people started to take memory bandwidth a bit more seriously. Uh, to add to what the other guys have said, I think this is particularly um, worth checking if you've bought a laptop, because um, similar to pre-builds, you know, it's all very well saying, oh, this has got 16 gigabytes of RAM. But if it's only one 16 gigabyte stick, then performance is going to be massively reduced compared to two 8 gigabyte sticks or indeed two 16 gigabyte sticks. So yes, uh, memory bandwidth, it's not the number one upgrade path for increased performance, but it may well be depending on what uh, your CPU and GPU are. That's that's the kind of crazy thing. Balancing a PC is really um, a lot more to it than meets the eye. Um, yeah, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from Emmanuel Orlando, Manu. Hey, an odd question maybe, but here goes. After reading that Cyberpunk 2077 is getting positive reviews, I went ahead and bought it. My PC sports an RTX 2080 
and I've rewatched Alex's recommended settings video and I'm matching that. I'm getting a range of FPS between 48 in the open city to 60 in closed environments at 1440p with DLSS set to performance. I'm considering limiting the FPS to 30 so I don't get constant fluctuations. I play on an LG C9 which supports G-Sync, but frame rate drops are very noticeable to my eyes. The question is, should I limit the FPS to 40 instead? I think my machine can hold a solid 40. After two hours of game, I've never seen anything below 48. Or best to stick to a more standard 30 FPS lock? There's one very important piece of information in your question that's missing, and it's what's your CPU? Uh, because when you go around driving around in the open world here, and I presume you're using ray tracing because you're in DLSS performance mode, um, the using ray tracing in this game, along with the generic amount of open world density that uh, Cyberpunk has, which is really high, uh, I found out in my video, uh, and I think subsequent testing thereafter, which I maybe might have not put online, I, I'm having trouble remembering that, it's a year ago, um, that the game is very CPU bound when you're driving around. So you could be getting CPU limited when you're driving around in the open world. I just don't know what your CPU is. So maybe you should ping me on the in the Discord if you can, uh, or maybe write to me in a DM or a tweet as well to just uh, further clarify your question here. But uh, there's some other things in here. I think um, 48 to 60 is actually a good G-Sync range, and it's also the usual range for uh, uh, monitors that don't have very good um, low uh, frame rate compensation. But the C9 should have LFC, um, I think. Uh, and um, I think that actually should look pretty fine. So the question is, why does it look so uh, not good to your eyes? And there's a reason why I think that is the case. Maybe are you actually capping above? Like, are you have do you have a maximum cap set? Like, I would limit it to 60, not let it go above 60, because you could be going above 60 indoors or something like that, and then dropping down to like 50, 48, 54, whatever, outside, and that would look more jarring than 60 to 48. So I would say set a max cap of 60, either with RTSS, or I think there's also an in-game cap in that game as well too. Um, and another thing would be to look at your frame times. If you're thinking 48 looks bad on a G-Sync monitor, maybe it's the frame times which are the problem, and it's not actually a smooth 48, which once again points to the fact that maybe you're CPU limited, because CPU limits tend to have really bad frame times, like where you can see it dipping up, or however you say it, uh, really large frame times, and those don't look good in smooth like GPU limited games. Uh, I, but if you still can't figure this out, I don't know, write to me again because I need to know more information, but if we still can't figure this out, then yes, a solid 40 uh, works perfectly fine on your monitor if you can set it up and uh, do that. It's good. Mm, but you'd need to be in 120 20 hertz. 20 hertz mode, whatever that is. I, I think the C9 has that in 4K. Does the C9 not have that in 4K mode? I, I honestly don't know. Well, he's on HDMI 2.0, so he wouldn't oh, have is? access yet. Oh, oh okay. so maybe the issue here is actually, maybe the issue here is actually has to do with the G-Sync range uh, yeah. on this monitor. Uh, I think uh, what I would be doing I need would be look. using RTSS to set a 45 mm -hmm. um, frame rate limit and lean into G-Sync. 
That's another and, thing you can do. Um, actually, no, that wouldn't work, would it? Because the range is 48. Assuming, upwards. I mean, I think the C9 is 48 to, is it 48 to 60? Uh, let's take a look. <laughs> LGG said great. LGG 40 to 60? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it could. Uh, it, oh, right, of course. If you're in a, um, if, if, if the monitor is in 60 hertz mode, then yes, you should be 40 to 60 minimum. If it is 40 to 60, okay. Yeah, so yeah, I would try uh, using uh, Revertune, a statistics server to limit to 45, uh, which is a 22.2 millisecond frame time. And it should still look pretty smooth. And the only issue then is, as Alex says, whether you get um, CPU stutter, which um, can actually be, you know, frame times higher than 22, which could be problematic. But yeah, I guess we kind of need to know what your CPU is there and um, what is causing the uh, the stutters there. But yeah, in interesting question. Thank you for the question, though, Emmanuel. <laughs> Absolutely. <sighs> uh, let's move on to the next question. Right, uh, Edwin Crump here. Many people are still using last-gen systems, whether due to cost availability or something else. If using last-gen systems, do you think an external or internal for PS4 SSD is now approaching a necessity. Loading times like Forza Horizon 5s are particularly painful on stock hard drives. Any thoughts on this, Will? Yeah, um, I think we probably are getting to that stage. I think a lot of games going forward will be kind of expecting an SSD and will kind of try and gracefully fall back if you know an SSD isn't available, but it's still gonna be quite long load times. So given that SSDs now are relatively cheap, there are certainly a lot of them going relatively cheap on Black Friday as well. Um, I think, yeah, if you have the resources to do it, then I think putting in an SSD will will make some difference. You are going to be limited by the fact that, what, it's SATA, not even like SATA 3, two. it's like SATA 2, right, on the PS4. Yeah, so, it's like SATA 2 yeah. and USB limited as well. Too, yeah, so you're like not going to get full it? performance, so... but if if you can get just a cheap, relatively small drive to fit the games that you play most often, that probably will make a lot of sense. Um, I was playing a lot of Forza Horizon 5 recently, and um, I was playing on PC and then sometimes going downstairs and playing on Series X. And even on Series X, like it was noticeably slower for stuff like when you pull up the camera to take a picture of a car you haven't taken a photo of yet. Like that takes like noticeably longer, even with that SSD. So I can't imagine with a hard drive. It must be... Uh, it's pretty grim. <laughs> I mean, it's to the point where even the intro drive um, isn't seamless. It, you have you have loading times of like 20, 30 seconds between each of the four segments. It's really, really bad. Play for a um, minute and a half, wait 30 seconds. Play for a minute and a half. So the, the Series S doesn't have that, right? So if, if this person, no. you know, potentially had an option to upgrade to the Series S, then maybe that would be a good kind of stopgap because... I think, you know, you get most of the experience there. You're quite right, Will, in that the argument against using an SSD on a last-gen system has always been, first of all, the expense, and secondly, that you'd never get the full potential of the hardware compared to how it runs in a PC. But it has reached the point now where uh, the prices are very, very reasonable for um, SATA drives, and um, you do get a big uplift in loading times or, you know, a big reduction in loading times. And um, it's not so much the transfer rates where you see a huge improvement, although they are there. Um, it's just the complete lack of latency. There's no physical head moving around the around the magnetic surface anymore. Instant access to the files that it needs to download. 
And uh, I, I would recommend it. And I'd say that it is sort of borderline essential now. But I think it's kind of come into focus a lot more because um, uh, because now we have got the Series S and the Series X and the PlayStation 5. And when you're going back to back between those two systems, as we often do, it really does shine a light on just how awful loading times, access times and streaming were on the last gen systems. And if you can mitigate that anyway and do so in a fairly cost effective manner, then do so. And um, you can use an external SSD on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 4 Pro, and you do get gains. So you don't need to replace the internal drive. Although if you do, uh, then you will find that your front end runs significantly more smoothly. So yes, to answer the question, yes. And specifically, if you can find a Samsung T5 or a Crucial X6, so those are the two portable SSDs that are normally kind of discounted on a regular basis. So those should be pretty good performers. Yes, follow at Steel's Foundry. Yep. <laughs> at Steel's Foundry USA, just to get another yep. plug in there. Um, next question, another one for you, Will. Uh, Jonas Larsen Tagazadeh, which gaming headsets are you using and what are your recommendations in that regard? It's a, a good question, Jonas. And I'm currently using a Epos H3 hybrid, I believe. And it seems like quite a good, comfortable headset. I haven't finished testing it, but it's pretty good. Uh, but the full answer is that, of course, we have a massive uh, page of gaming headset recommendations. We have kind of an overall one for all platforms, and we have specific ones for PC and Xbox, just because those platforms are a little bit different in some respects to what else is out there. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of really good options. Um, brands that I tend to like are SteelSeries, Razer, Epos, and Logitech. There's, there's many others as well. Um, but yeah, do have a look at our pages because we have many, many recommendations for, for all sorts of platforms. And, and you do actually test them. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, everything that kind of comes through here, as you can see by the uh, piles of boxes kind of over there, um, I will test out in normally like in Counter-Strike and then something a little bit more cinematic immersive. And uh, yeah, if it's good, it'll go into our list of recommendations. And if not, then we send a polite notice to the manufacturer to do better and uh, we don't add it. Okay, final question from Sloth. Uh, would it be worthwhile to develop a DF performance rubric similar in layout to this particular URL? <laughs> it could have it could have rows for different performance criteria, frame pacing, resolution, shader, compilation, etc. Then columns for how well a game addresses these aspects. It might well help make the review process more transparent and game developers could use it as a benchmark during testing. Maybe it could be co-created with the Patreon community if it is something you think is worth doing, Alex. I tend to be actually against super hardcore cross uh, context, cross genre, cross whatever rubrics, because they immediately throw context out the window and they say everything is broadly comparable with like numbering and things like that. And I just don't think it works that way. I think you need, that's why we do essay style videos that elucidate things with long form text, contextualize 
the things that we find important in a title per title basis because it will be different in each title because each game has different design goals and different uh like i don't want to use a rubric that i would use for a quadruple a halo infinite developed for six years with 600 750 people for a 70 person studio light triple a double a experience but with still high production values i wouldn't ever want to do that so i kind of say that i'm actually just very much so against the idea in general it may be applicable to other uh, disciplines but i don't think it's super applicable to my work at df necessarily you run the risk of actually um putting making comparisons between titles that are not in any way uh representative of the experience right I mean, I mean, a classic example here is, you know, resolution, for example, um, a game that has a lower resolution, but a much higher anisotropic filtering value on textures could actually look a whole lot better with, at the lower resolution. <laughs> even, you know, even if you're doing the same content, uh, there's also stuff that's happening now with, uh, you know, Call of Duty Vanguard, for example, um, they've got a super advanced VRS uh, system. Uh, which they lean into heavily more so than they lean into dynamic resolution scaling. And uh, they actually did a very detailed analysis of where they should actually put uh, the, the emphasis. Should they lean into VRS or should they lean into DRS? And obviously, if you had this focus just on the resolution side of things, then, you know, it would always come up as 4K on a, on a PlayStation 5 when actually there is a reduction in resolution, it's just they're trying to mitigate the, the way it presents via VRS. It's, this is why we basically moved away from just presenting raw numbers. So, you know, if you go back to DF in 2015, 2014, before that, you know, you would just get comparison assets, you would just get frame rate metrics. There wasn't actually any kind of analysis presented in the video content. It was just in the articles and um, it wasn't good. And I think the problem in just presenting performance criteria is that it's not it's a part of the story, but it's arguably not the most important part of the story uh, in many scenarios. And I've, I've used this example a lot and I'll raise it again. But, you know, um, let's say I want to buy a new car. All right, it's got a 0 to 60 of 6.8 seconds. And, you know, it's, it's just one metric. Even if you presented all of the metrics, it's not going to be as good as having somebody qualified to talk about the subject matter, sitting in the car, talking about what it's like to drive. And that's kind of the realization that we came to on Digital Foundry some years ago is that you can present just the metrics and you know that's okay but it's fundamentally limited in terms of interest and doesn't present the full story i think what you're what you're recommending sloth is already partially done by the community uh in a lot of ways or just general knowledge uh like you say frame pacing issues resolution tables there's actually if you go to like Re reset era and probably other communities they keep tabs of what we're doing and they write out like <laughs> like excel spreadsheets about like this this is the resolution of this title and this is its general performance profile uh, people do that for us technically already so we don't necessarily need to do it 
as well there too. Uh, you can find it. Just just look for it. So, Will, do you think there is maybe an argument to roll this out for hardware tests like CPU, GPU, something along those lines? In terms of having set tests for for each CPU. Yeah, but we kind of kind of do that already. Yeah, right? more or less. You know, we'll have different kind of content creation workloads that are the same each time. We'll have you know. We'll use the same games, at least for the uh, you know, for the CPUs that we're testing in that particular iteration. So yeah, I think we already do as much of this as we need to, I think. Um, and I think as well, if we did a DF performance rubric, I feel like somebody would boil that down to like a DF score, and then it would just become another inflammatory aspect of the process that we're trying to get away from. As an example, I saw recently someone uh, on Beyond 3D comment that we should start posting Excel spreadsheets of our frame rate data, um, which I don't want to do at all because it's once again completely contextless. I, I can have for a game 60 hours, I can have like 60 hours of frame rate data or something like that for a game. Seriously, you really can uh, when you just like leave the game on and play it and come back to it and things like that. and you would just have numbers there that are contextless of what's happening on screen and you wouldn't have any idea what it means you could see like oh there's a 150 frame millisecond spike there what was that oh it was the screen actually going black and our tools cannot even handle a screen going black for 150 milliseconds because no tool can do that um you us putting out that data to you i don't think it's really useful other than to maybe start console wars with. I, I, I don't know exactly what you would really want to do with data like that. So I think I really like the way our, our uh, directorial editorial content has been going ever since Rich talked about it, like ever since 2015, 2016, changing up the way we do it. I really like the way it's going and I kind of want to get away from us scoring things in a hardcore way. The other thing is that the data is actually incredibly dull. Yep. <laughs> Because for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, pretty much I think from the PlayStation 4 generation onwards, there has been a real focus on hitting performance targets, whether it's 30 or 60 frames per second. So the general trend of performance is actually trending upwards and it isn't really that bad. You know, it's to the point where the outliers, the really bad ones, you know, stick in the memory and, uh, you know, okay, just cause three, you know. That's, that's a game that's got really bad performance. I'm going to give that a go. But the actual sort of range of games that we have to test there is actually relatively low. Secondly, um, when you start talking about stuff like average frame rates, when you've got a frame rate cap of 30 frames per second, the longer your sample, the less relevant the aberrations from the performance target become, right? Because the, the longer it is running at 30 or 60 frames per second, the less statistically relevant frame rate drops become. So stuff, you know, in a PC scenario where frame rate is entirely unlocked all of the time and there is no cap, um, then that actually could be used for a benchmarking sort of style scenario. But again, it's not really the, the way that I would want to play a PC game. And I'd suspect that, you know, in the age of the VRR G-Sync displays, again, there is a notional cap there, which is the refresh rate of the monitor, right? So again, um, in terms of benchmarking, in terms of doing like GPU tests, that kind of makes sense, but it doesn't really make sense in terms of benchmarking games, um, because as soon as you hit the frame rate cap, then you know basically 
the result will be skewed, certainly the longer your sample is. So yeah, um, yeah, I th I, we've been doing this for a long time now. <laughs> this is kind of where we've settled on and how we think it works. Uh, always willing to look at new things and um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I guess the big question more generally is um, how are we going to evolve? You know, how does our coverage improve? And this is something that we talk about all the time and uh, lots of new ideas for new, for doing new stuff. Obviously, the whole concept of image quality metrics are is a big hot topic and uh, we're finally making some progress there. But um, in terms of, um, you know, basically having spreadsheets per game, it's not in any way as valuable as Alex, John or Tom sitting down, showing me how the game runs, what the problems are, what the successes are and what they think of it fundamentally. That's that's the, the big thing for me. That's the value for me. But yeah, that's it. And I think that's the final question of the show, Tears. which means... It is the end of the show. Oh, so no. thank you so much uh, for joining me on this one, Will and Alex. Of course. Thank you. And uh, Will, we've got to get you on more often, clearly. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to be. Okay. Well, as always, please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed the content. Ring the bell. The bell. Ring it for those notionally instant notifications. Uh, DF supports a program. Talk about it all the time, but it really is awesome. Um, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. Stop sneezing.